Please turn back to page 1144 uh, as I introduce a series to be taken up next week on the cross-shaped church in later chapters of 1 Corinthians and this one-off today, just a brief look at the church, how we recognise that church in these rather packed verses at the beginning of 1 Corinthians. Today is traditionally known as Low Sunday. For those who are experts on internet, which doesn't include the preacher this morning, but if you're an expert on internet, you will discover very easily uh, why it's called Low Sunday. There's a, a long historic erudite reason for it, but it's become a kind of synonym because it's a Sunday after Easter and we all had exciting times at Easter and the church goes into uh, second year on Low Sunday. It's the day when retired clergymen get brought back to take residence in pulpits uh, and we quite enjoy our bit on Low Sunday. And if it's normally Low Sunday, it's even low, it's lower than the low today because we, it's between bank holidays as well. This really is. And so you've got me this Sunday morning as we look at uh, these verses in 1 Corinthians and in a way it's a rather good move from the, the excitement of Easter the glory and the wonder. I enjoyed worshipping here and singing here and preaching here over Easter. It was a great excitement to be on a high with Jesus who died and rose again. And now we're going to look at the church. And that seems a kind of low. In fact, John Stott in one of his books says, young people of today, and that was written years ago, even more so I guess today, I don't know. Young people today give a yes vote to Jesus and a no vote to the church. And, says John Stock, it's understandable. The church doesn't seem exciting and wonderful. We see all its failures and its disappointments. And yet, he points out, you can't give a no vote to the church if you give a yes vote to Jesus. For once you're in Christ, you are in the church. The church is the bride of Christ. But I think I know why people have got this no vote to the church. For example, we think of the church as sometimes being a vocation. I remember years ago when our son was ordained, somebody saying to me, you must be rather proud that your son has followed your footsteps and gone into the church. I, I said, don't you dare tell my son he's followed in my footsteps, you'll be in trouble. And in any case, he hasn't gone into the church. He went into the church when he was baptized as a baby in anticipation, when he came to confirmation and made his vows, vows when he was really committed to Christ. That's when he came into the church. I do give pedantic answers sometimes just to keep people at, at their right level. Uh, and then the next problem is we think of the church as a building. So here's another of my pedantic comments. Uh, vicar, a person called at the vicarage once and said to me, Philip, can you show me around the church? I've never seen your church. I said, I'm very sorry, I can't do that. It's not there at the moment. Now that caused all sorts of uh, problems. Uh, they thought it had got sort of translated into space or something. But I was being pedantically correct. The church wasn't there midweek when this building was empty. It's here today. You don't go to church. Please never talk about going to church. You are part of the church. The church is not a building. And that's why we come to this passage at the beginning of 1 Corinthians that reminds us you get in verse 2 a great definition of the church, the called out people of God. That's what the church means. And a wonderful uh, picture of the church in verse 9 where it talks about the church as a fellowship. You've got that message, have you? Years ago, I was one of, an evangelical who battled for the uh, evangelical point of view. Every now and again, we evangelicals in the Church of England, people said, your trouble is with you evangelicals, you don't have any ecclesiology. Does that worry you? The doctrine of the church. 
by which they meant we don't have their doctrine of the church. We have our own very happy ecclesiology, which isn't to do with bishops and denominations. It's to do with the family of God around Jesus Christ. And would you please notice that where in verse 1 Paul was called, do you realize you've been called? Verse 2, the church are those who are called to be holy and who call on the name of our Lord Jesus and who in verse 9 are called into fellowship. You are called. When I was a young convert, I used to avoid missionary meetings. I was frightened to death God would call me to be a missionary. So I thought if I kept away from missionary meetings, I was fairly safe. But God has a sense of humor. He called me to the ordained ministry instead. And I'm so glad he did. But every single one of us is called into fellowship. That word in verse 9, a lovely Greek word, koinonia, is the word that actually means communion. So what we do this morning is expressing our fellowship, that we belong together with him and with one another. And it, when the, this church in Corinth happened, it was a remarkable demonstration of a called out people of God. You see in chapter 2, if you glance at your Bible, in chapter 2, when Paul first went to Corinth, verse 3 of chapter 2, I came to you in weakness and fear and with much trembling. Now, he was no uh, Pele Wally character, wasn't Paul? He, he was strong. But when he went to Corinth, he felt it. Why? Corinth was a synonym for immorality. To play the Corinthian was a common phrase, to be sexually immoral and perverse, all the things we read about in the world of today. That was Corinth. And there was no church there. And so when these Christians were set apart, they were different. They had to be different. And it's interesting, he talks in chapter 2 about a demonstration of the Spirit's power. If you read Acts 18, where the Gospel first came to Corinth, and you read the story of Corinth, you will find not one single reference to any miraculous, miraculous healing or casting out of demons and all that. No doubt there were. But what you will see is a church of pure people set up out, apart as different. That was the demonstration of the Spirit's power. I saw the other day uh, over Easter there was a, a thing on the television which pointed out that Christ had come to Fort Talbot. I, I've never, never, I get into trouble. At 9.15 there was a person from Port, Fort Talbot. Port Talbot. Be careful what I say about Port Talbot. I'm sure it's a lovely and wonderful place. It's Port, I make my reference. It's Port Talbot. But what did they mean by Christ has come to Port Talbot? Well, there was some Easter activity, a man carrying a cross and a demonstration of drama. Okay, fine. And nothing wrong with that. But I want Christ to come to Fullwood, not with some sort of external uh, dramatic presentation, good though that may be, Christ comes to fullwood through the church, through what we are, through what we were meant to be called out. Do you see in verse 2, the church of God in Corinth. Yes, living there. Yes, part of the community, but set apart and gloriously different. So I would suggest to you, if we look at these verses, and we're going to look at the cross-shaped church, there are four pictures. Oh, remember, it wasn't a perfect church. If you glance there, in verse 9, it talks about a fellowship. In verse 10, they've already got divisions. And as you read on in this letter, you'll find all sorts of problems. 
Such were some of you, but you were sanctified. But you're still ordinary people. And so are we. But there are four marks of the church then and four marks of the church now, which is a true, genuine church of Jesus Christ. First, it was established by God. I wonder if you notice that actually the creation of the church is parallel to the creation of the world and the ministry of Jesus. Let me explain why. In Genesis 1, when the world came into being, in the beginning God created the Father, and God said, the Word of God, which is a second person, Jesus, and the Spirit of God moved on the face. There's the Trinity. And when the Gospel begins in Mark's Gospel, the voice came from heaven saying, You're my son. And the Spirit descended like a dove. And Jesus came, all the persons of the Trinity. And here in the creation of the church in Corinth, that small but growing group of people who were different, it was God at work. I don't think I need to be a great prophet to tell you that we're running into very turbulent waters in our own country as the church of Jesus Christ. Marginalized Christians are going to get more and more and more if we dare to stand up and be counted. I hope we will, but expect that. And in the world at large, persecution is becoming the norm. And so being a Christian is going to call out from the people of God a great sense that we are God's people. And we're going to suffer for it. If you want a comfortable, easy life and everybody around to think you're wonderful, forget about Jesus. But if, like me, you want to follow in his footsteps, be ready. You are the people of God. We are the people of God. And the work of the Father is there. The work of the Spirit is there. The work of the Son. The work of the Father is that we are called like Paul was called. Note that phrase in verse 1, by the will of God. Don't you believe that? He's called us as part of his church by the will of God. And in Acts chapter 18, when you read the story of the church at Corinth, when you go back home over coffee after lunch, just have a glance at Acts chapter 18, read the story. For in the church of Corinth, Paul got very depressed and the Lord appeared to him in a vision. As far as you can tell, there are only three times Paul talks about special visions, though there were others he may not refer to. This is one of them, a very special vision in Corinth where, God's, where the Lord said to Paul, don't be afraid, I'm with you. I have many people in this city, don't give up. He may need to say that to us. He's there with us. You see in verse 10, uh, in verse 9, he has called us and he is faithful. The one who calls is faithful. He'll keep us going to the end. The work of the Father, the work of the Spirit, only mentioned uh, by chance, if you like, in verse 7, where it refers to a spiritual gift and the ministry of the church in Corinth was a demonstration of the, the Spirit's power. And what we are here and what we may be here and what the church in this land may be facing this great challenge of today is all the work of the Spirit. Without Him, we are nothing. And thirdly, it's the work of the Son. That supremely, just glancing at the verses you will believe with me that nine times the word Jesus comes in the first nine verses and to be accurate it comes ten times in the first ten verses. You can't doubt that this Jesus dominates the scene. Please remember we're not deists who believe in God. 
We're not spiritists who believe in a spirit. We are Christians who believe in Jesus. He's the very centre of our life. And God our Father is the Father of our Lord Jesus. And he says, by the, the Spirit helps us to confess Jesus as Lord. So we are his, his work supremely is a work that makes all the difference. And just look in verse 2. What is his work? We are sanctified in Christ Jesus. We are set apart in Christ Jesus. We are called to be holy in Christ Jesus. And he will, by his Spirit, make us holy. That's his calling. But please go on in verse 2. We are with those who call on the name of our Lord Jesus. The first time people are mentioned worshipping in the Bible is Genesis 4, where it says, Men called on the name of the Lord. It's a, a phrase for worship. But please note in verse 2, who call on the name, not of the Lord, but our Lord Jesus Christ. Now note the phrase, their Lord and ours. I look round the church, I recognise a fair number of you. There are those I don't recognise. It would be a sad day if I did recognise everybody. It's time the church wasn't growing. I don't know you all, but I know a lot. We are a motley crew at the best, of course we are. Uh, and we are what we are. And yet the lovely thing is we are brothers and sisters in Christ. Now, if you are choosing out your friends, you might not necessarily choose out everybody here. Uh, but we are in Christ. He's their Lord and ours. So if you say our Father when you pray, you include every other brother and sister in Christ. So every believer is your brother and your sister. And we shall express that in this lovely communion service. One of the great notes of this communion service, it demonstrates our oneness in Christ. It's a long time ago now when I was a, a rector in Edinburgh, I got a phone call from the Bishop of Edinburgh. Now, I don't normally get phone calls from bishops. I don't have that kind of uh, relationship. But here was a phone call from the Bishop. I knew something was wrong. And he said, Philip, I've heard that you give communion to people of all denominations. Is that right? Now, in those days, that was revolutionary. An Anglican giving communion to Baptists and Presbyterians and the like, that really was a, a great revolution. So when the bishop asked that question, I said on the phone, I called him sir, I thought I better had. Yes, sir, I said, I do. Well, Philip, he said, supposing I ask you to stop doing it, what would you do? This was a great moment of truth. My whole ministry hinged on this moment. I said, I shall take no notice, sir. I thought not, said the bishop. I thought not. Uh, and I know what happened. The bishop would say to the person who complained, I've had a word with him. Uh, that's all it was. Of course I was right. And thank God now the Church of England doesn't make those silly rules. Denominational differences are a nonsense. That their Lord and ours. And one of the great things about this fellowship is a wonderful promise. Will you note the word fellowship in verse 9? Do you like English grammar? Verse 9 is either an objective genitive or a subjective genitive. It either means fellowship with the Son Jesus or fellowship with one another in the Son Jesus Christ. To which the answer is both. Both. For when I become a Christian, I have a relationship with him which is wonderful and unique, but it unites me with every other believer. That's the work of the Son. That's the beauty of the church. And one of the joys I've had of our itinerant ministry over a number of years now is to be part of that worldwide church and how wonderful it is. Established by God. Secondly, 
enabled by grace. There in verse 4, in the beginning, I thank God because of His grace given you in Christ Jesus. What else could make people in Corinth, Jews and Greeks alike, in that wicked city, what could make them holy people? Only God's grace. Later on in this service, we shall say, we do not presume to come to this your table trusting in our own righteousness. Would God that every one of us believed it. When we kneel at the Lord's table, we don't go claiming our rights. We don't tell the Lord what wonderful people we are. We come saying we're not worthy even to gather up the crumbs under your table. The moment you and I stop to believe that and think that we've reached it and that somehow we're rather special, that moment we've missed out. Grace in the beginning. But grace for our blessing in verse 3. Grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, I hope you don't think I'm being alarmist, but increasingly, as we live in a world of turbulence and our nation will reflect the turbulence going on all over the world, increasingly, the church was, will, was meant to be that oasis of peace. Now, I didn't particularly expect to watch the wedding all on Friday. I'm not a kind of wedding watcher. When you're a vicar of all of these years, you've done so many weddings in your time, another wedding is another wedding. But I thought I would watch the wedding, and I watched it right through, and I enjoyed it enormously. I really did. And in a way, I think, even I got caught up in this, you know. Even I got caught up in it. Sheffield went were away. Oh, no, that was Saturday, wasn't it? Even I got caught up in the, in the whole atmosphere of it. And, and for many people, it was a kind of an oasis of joy. It said something to people in the midst of a turbulent world. There are certain things that are still special. But okay, that's just one moment. Do pray for William and Kathy, whatever she calls herself, Kate, Katie. Do pray for her. I'm not quite sure what, what her, her sort of name she likes to be known by. William and Kate, the Duke and Duchess of Cambridge. I better be correct. Pray for them. And pray that they might be given grace to respond to the truth of Christ and, and set a lead. But it was a reminder to us that whatever a service can do, a church which goes on demonstrating the truth of the gospel will increasingly be an, an oasis of peace in the turbulent world. For our blessing, in the beginning, enabled by grace. Thirdly, enriched by gifts. In, later on in 1 Corinthians, there's a lot about the gifts of the Spirit. Just two thoughts here. One in verse 5, it talks about a special gift. In Him you have been enriched in every way. I love that picture. In Christ, enriched in every way. Years and years ago, I, I went to help with a mission at, at Oxford University. I went back to my old college. Uh, and uh, I wasn't always the best attender at the, at the college chapel. But since I was leading the mission, I thought I'd better be at the college chapel on the Sunday and I did and the master of that college was giving his farewell sermon he'd been the master there when I'd been a student and he preached from this text it was a good sermon and he tried to point out that he was a scholar and he was a he was a great interest in art and music he would want to say that his scholarship and his art and his music had all been enriched by him being a Christian I think that's fair and I think that's one interpretation of this verse 5, that we're enriched in every way. Being a Christian 
sets us apart in one sense, but it doesn't mean to say we can't enjoy the real things of life and be enriched. I hope you're a richer Christian. And I trust that we can demonstrate to the world, the unbelieving world, that to become a Christian is to be even more enriched. And particularly here in verse 5, in speaking and in knowledge. There are many other gifts of the Spirit mentioned in 1 Corinthians, but none more important than word and knowledge, in speaking and knowledge. Special gifts, but also spiritual gifts. That's verse 7. You do not lack any spiritual gift as you eagerly wait for our Lord Jesus Christ to be revealed. It's got this picture of the gift of the Spirit being an anticipation of a greater gift to come. It's in, Rome, in Romans 8, Paul speaks about the, the first fruits of the Spirit, anticipating that greater gift. One of the nice things about preaching twice at Fullwood, you can actually change the sermon around from 11 o'clock from 9.15. You say, when, you, when you've tried something at 9.15, it didn't work, you miss it out at 11 o'clock. It's nice. I don't get this chance very often nowadays. But I can also do it at 9.15. I had an illustration which I have to spare my wife's blushes, so I miss it out at 11 o'clock. But it was all to do with an engagement ring. You asked Mark Morris all about my engagement ring story. She's heard the story so many times, she can say it better than I can. So just have a word with her. And I omit it, I omit it. But it is, it's just a reminder. When I saw uh, the, the Archbishop having a job getting the bride's ring on uh, uh, in Westminster Abbey, I had a fellow feeling, it often happened, I think girls' knuckles swell or something, they always have a problem. I can remember saying, give it a lick. But he, I don't think the archbishop said, give it a lick. Uh, your job to get it on. But the point about the two rings is that uh, the engagement ring came first and then eventually the wedding ring came second. And the gift of the Spirit is like the engagement ring. Indeed, in modern Greek, the word for an engagement ring is the word that's used in the, gospel, in the epistles for the pledge or earnest of the Spirit. The engagement ring is wonderful, but there's something even better. And the gift of the Spirit is to enable us to live in anticipation of that glorious day, which is even better as we come in a moment to that last picture. I said at 9.15, and I, 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 someone just sort of challenged me about it, but uh, I meant it in the right sense. I think I've now got more friends in heaven than on earth. And they were quite upset with an I-15 that I thought I had more friends in heaven. But when you get to our age, you do. They've gone ahead of us. They've got there preparing to meet us. And that will be the great day when the church will be the church triumphant. When we shall see him in all his glory. But meantime, we have the Spirit to enable us to be a pale reflection on earth of the glory of heaven. And so my last point, enable established by God, enabled by grace, enriched by gifts, envisioned for glory. That's verses 7 and 8. Two thoughts, very simply. On that day, till that day. On that day, says verse 7, Christ will be revealed. It's a lovely picture. He is ascended. He is raised. He is there now. And one day we, he will return in all his splendor and glory. And says John in his letter 1 John 3, when we shall see him, we shall be like him. We shall see him as he is, and we shall be like, like him. And the communion service always anticipates that day, the glory and wonder of that day. There will be no communion in heaven. We shan't need communion in heaven. We shan't need the symbols of his death 
because we shall be with him. We shall know him in person. But till that day, it's quite simply, verse 7, we must eagerly wait for our Lord Jesus. It's a very long word in the original Greek. It means it's got a stretching out, anticipating, head stretched forward, ready. It's a word that's used of an athlete breasting the tape. Olympic Games coming up soon and you'll all be getting your tickets or if you're like me, you'll not even dream of getting a ticket, you get a better view watching telly at home, never mind. Uh, you'll see them breasting the tape. I was never very good at athletics. Uh, whenever I ran a race, I never breasted the tape. They'd rolled the tape up and gone home by the time I got to the end, so I never breasted the tape. But I know the, the meaning. Eagerly waiting for that day. Ah, but wait a minute. Will you see the other side of it, and I finish with this, really? It says in verse 8, He will keep you strong to that end, so that you will be blameless. Please note that. That idea of blameless is not that we shall live such a perfect life that when we meet the Lord we'll have nothing to confess. Oh, it doesn't mean that. We're in Christ and we're accepted in Him and we shall be blameless and He'll keep us in that relationship justified by grace and He'll keep us strong until that day. And because we care about that day, we shall long to live as blameless a life as we can. He will be the strength that will hold us for he says he is faithful. I think I've uh, virtually done all those nine verses. But if you've been following very carefully, which you probably haven't, but if you had, I missed one little bit out. I missed out a bit in verse 1. Paul called to be an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God and our brother Sosthenes. Poor old Sosthenes, I left him out. And I left him out rather specially because I've got a, a soft spot for Sosthenes because, you see, Sosthenes appears in Acts chapter 18, this man. Now, I can't guarantee it's the same one, but you would think there weren't too many Sosthenes in, in, in Corinth, but I can't prove it. But I think it probably was the same Sosthenes. And what did he do in Acts 18? He got beaten up. He got beaten up in the court. There was a row going on between the Jews and Paul and Sosthenes got caught up in it. It doesn't say who beat him up. Might have been fellow Jews who, uh, who were sort of... Uh, he was the ruler of the synagogue. Maybe they thought he'd let the side down. It may have been the Greeks who were fed up with all this Jewish rivalry. But you see the difference? Sosthenes, somewhere, has become a believer. And Paul can say about this rule of the synagogue, he's our brother. We've had a fair number of people recently, but there were more, but we've had a number of folk who've come to faith later in life here. Well, don't leave it to later in life. Best have a long life as Christians. But how much better to get there later than never. And it's a lovely thought that around the, fam around the throne of God there'll be believers who've come from all sorts of ways, brothers and sisters. And when we kneel at the Lord's table here today, I find coming back, to giving communion, helping with communion, rather touching really, because I know many of you, and it's a lovely, I know some of the stories that are around those, that communion rail. But what really matters is that we have found faith in him. We have been called by him. And the great challenge is that if that is true, 
If we do belong to this church of Jesus Christ, brothers and sisters, we are called to be holy, different, attractive. Not just individually, but as a community that can live together in a way the world cannot know. God give us grace to show it and to share it that we might be truly a fellowship of God's people, a church called out, set apart in Christ.